Hey, it's Dan Harmon from Harmontown. I want to tell you about an exciting new podcast coming to Feral Audio called Launch Left. Rain, Phoenix, and Moon Zappa are going to interview extraordinary minds, mavericks, and pioneers in their fields. This season, Launch Left is going to celebrate nonconformists like Michael Stipe, Shepard Ferry, Spike Jones, Mario Batali, and many others. And those guests are also going to spotlight their favorite left-of-center emerging artists. So listen and subscribe now at feralaudio.com slash left, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do it however you want, man. That's the nonconformist part. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D. LD.com right now and use a promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Hello. Welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I am Matt Dwyer. I just wanted to give you a little dramatic feel there. Uh, that music you hear there is Les Blanks. Go to lesblanks.com. Check them out. They're real goods with the musics and the m- makings of guitar sounds and whatnot. Um, I'm, uh, I'm tired. I won't lie to you. I got four hours of sleep. And uh, I'm a guy who tries to live in the present. But uh, every once in a while you get one of those uh, things in the mail from uh, the Social Security people telling you... <laughs> How much, when you, like, turn 62 or whatever it is, how much you're going to get uh, every month from uh, from the governments? Well, not from the governments, because I paid for it. And, uh, or, or we'll put it in Republican terms, not my uh, Social Security, my entitlement payments. Because I'm an entitled little brat. I'm an entitled little child. Give me my money, because I'm old and I can't work anymore. I'm entitled. Look at me. I'm an old person. I'm pouting and throwing myself on the floor and punching, pounding the ground with my fists and kicking it with my feet. Because I'm an entitled old bratty person who just, you know, would I would still work that construction job, but I blew out my hips. I'm a pouty, entitled old person. <laughs> but also, you know, uh, they say, like, how much you'll get at 62, and then if you decide to wait 10 years or something like that, they they give you a little bit more. Because, you know, like if you're 62, you know, and you're like, oh, I, I could retire, but I can hold out another 10 years and get an extra $100 a month. God knows they won't fire me from my job because all the young kids are working circles around me because I'm I'm 65 and I could barely pick anything up because I got my, my joints hurt and my, my arthritis is kicking in. And, well, I got that heart disease problem, so, you know, I can't work too fast because I might have a stroke and a heart attack at the same time and my head will pop off. <laughs> but... But, uh, I got, mine said something like, I don't have it in front of me, because it's like, uh, because I got depressed, and I tossed it in the recycling paper of, 
Um, but it said something approximately, I'll get like $350 a month in about 30-something years. I'll get 300-something dollars every month. Yeah. Hey, I'm not bragging, but uh, when I'm in my 60s, I'll be getting $300 a month, ladies. Ladies, <laughs> don't line up too quickly, ladies, for that 350 something dollars a month. That's right, and hopefully I'll have Medicare or Medicaid or whatever the... Or Reuben Kincaid from the uh, Partridge family. <laughs> 300. That pretty much, and I, I'll be honest with you, like, I've lived under the guise of, like, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a creative, show busy sort of guy, so I've always been under the sort of the umbrella of, like, you know, I've, I, well, I've never saved any money. That's really what that's coming down to, and I, I, I don't have a savings account. <laughs> and I've always been like, well, I'll probably sell a movie and, you know, one of them blockbuster hit movies, which I don't ever write. I write small, weird comedies. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, I'm, I've, I've targeted my life after the good bucks, the big bucks. But, uh, so pretty much at, uh, you know, that's it. I'm, uh, so pretty much when I am in retirement age, I have the option of being, uh, the oldest bank robber ever. Uh, or the oldest male prostitute ever. <laughs> Do you, would you like a blue job? Do I cup the balls and stroke the shaft? Ooh, ow, my back! I blew, ah, blew out my back again, blowing dudes. <laughs> That's, uh, what my future has in store for me. That, or, uh, like I'll live in, you know, Downey or some weird suburb of Los Angeles, uh, in a transient hotel eating cat food out of a can. Or dog food. Maybe I'll eat dog food, you know, because I'm more of a dog person, so it makes sense. I don't like cats. I'm allergic to cats. Cats annoy me. I think cats are filthy. Dogs are friendly, and I consider myself friendly. I'm gonna eat. Uh, I'm gonna eat the dog food there. But ladies, I'm just saying, play your cards right, and it could be a can of Alpo for two. You know what I'm saying? In our futures of retirement, uh, <laughs> and you know, I don't want to get married. I don't want to get married. Married. I want. I like. You know what I like the sound of? Common law. Doesn't it sound romantic to you? Common law. We're just common law. That just kind of just sounds like we're not too bright and really lazy because we couldn't get married married. I'm common law. I got a low IQ and I live out of a pickup truck. I'm common law. Let's be common law. Wife. You're my wife. I don't think there's a word sexier or hotter than wife and husband. Doesn't that sound sexy? Don't you want to fuck your wife? <laughs> and don't you want to suck on your husband's dick? Oh, husband. I went, when I get married again, I, <laughs> that's how I want to have sex. I want to be, ooh, wife. Oh, that feels good, wife. Can't wait to be inside you, wife. Don't you want to mount don't you want to crawl on top of your husband and put your husband's penis inside your wifey vagina? <laughs> Doesn't that sound awesome? Don't you want to have some kids, wife? Let's make a baby, wife. Ooh, I want to shoot my batter inside you and make a baby, wife. <laughs> and you know, everybody, when you, when you have kids, make sure you have two because what if something tragic happens and uh, the kid gets hit by a bus and then... You know, you, if you have one kid, then you got to mow the lawn yourself. So have two kids, everybody, so you don't have to do yard work. 
I was like too when people are like, well, I, I don't, I want to have kids, so you know somebody takes care of me when I'm old. A, that's just really horribly selfish. That's not a reason to have children. <laughs> that's fucking terrible. And uh, you know, what if your kid's a junkie or hates you or moves to Iowa and uh, or unless you're in Iowa, then that would be a convenient thing. But uh, this, you know, just because you have kids doesn't mean they're going to take care of you. Maybe you're an asshole and your kids don't want to take care of you. These are things you should think about when you're talking about making more people in this world. Because we don't really need more people in this world. We don't need no more people. Uh, starting my own singing group, everybody, and I think that sounded pretty good. I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna go. I think it's gonna go pretty well. Pretty well. And then I'm going to become such a huge star that I'm going to be forcibly raped. Forcibly rape me. <laughs> I, I, don't, I know that Aiken guy is a piece of shit for saying forcibly raped or whatever these weird phrases are. There was also some other Republican who said, uh, you know, if you're getting raped, why don't you just, uh, you know, lay back and enjoy it? <laughs> That's like saying if, if you're getting beat up by several people, just like, hey, stop thinking of it as a beating and, and think of it as a massage. You know, just relax and let them pound your tense muscles. That's about that's the same logic there, everybody. Also, uh, uh, vegan. I've uh, kind of I did uh, I've done uh, that was a terrible transition. I did this uh, recent uh, experiment where I, I've I said I'd eat vegan for four weeks because I was in the Midwest uh, once a month for three months doing shows and eating pork and beef. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I've been researching things about factory farming and, and, you know, and spiritually and stuff. And I just realized, you know, it's something I wanted to try. And I haven't been, I did eat eggs and I've eaten bread. You know, I haven't been really strict about it. But, and I'll probably, I don't know how strict I'll be vegan wise. Uh, but I might remain vegetarian for my own personal reasons. But motherfucker, when you tell people you started eating vegan, they get really, they get really weirded out by it. <laughs> it's like my one friend, a woman, goes, "Oh man, you're a faggot." <laughs> it was like it's like I probably you would probably be more accepting if I told you I've become gay. Like, yes, I've decided to suck dicks. Pe my friends would probably be like, "Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's cool. We support you." You tell them you're like not eating meat and dairy, and they're like, "Whoa!" And then everyone's always like, "How are you getting your protein? How are you get how are you getting your protein?" That's not healthy. It's like most people in America and most of my friends don't eat very well. They eat a lot of they eat a lot of meat. They eat a lot of cheese. They drink a lot of booze. Like suddenly, why is my uh, why is why is my deciding to eat a bunch of veggies and fruit uh, suddenly really bad? I just like if we live in a society where uh, we say it's okay to like you have every right to do what you want with your body, then who gives a shit what I'm eating? It's just, it's really weird because it's like I don't run around and like yell at people for eating meat or whatever they do. I just think it's really weird that people, and who knows, in two months I might be like, you know what, I want a cheeseburger. But for right now, this is the thing I'm doing and I don't understand, you know, why people get all weird about it. I mean, I know like a lot of vegans uh, can be real dick munches, but uh, whatever. And you know what I forgot to do at the top of the show? I forgot to say who today's guest is. But uh, this is the take I'm going to keep. So uh, uh, today's guest is uh, Lev Anderson. He's a documentarian. He made a documentary about uh, 
the, the band Fishbone there. And he's uh, later on, he talks about his uh, new documentary that he's working on. And uh, it's a really interesting conversation. He talks about uh, filmmaking, what it takes to get a film made, talking about hanging out with Al Gore. It's a real good episode, so why don't we just listen to that? Thank you. Wow. I'm uh, with uh, hi Lev Anderson. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me over here. I guess uh, you are uh, what we what, what do you call a documentarian? Sure. Sure. I'll take that. <laughs> well, you did, uh, and I saw it, and it was great. Uh, uh, you did a documentary on Fishbone, and we'll start with that, I guess, because I didn't. Fr- frankly, I didn't know anything. I didn't. I've always known them, but I didn't really know anything about them. So it was kind of fascinating to go into that world because. One of the first things I thought of when I listened to it was, uh, oh, this is everything the Chili Peppers want it to be. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, the Chili Peppers really just pretty much copped what they did. Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I wasn't in L.A. in the early 80s, so I don't know exactly, um, you know, how things went down. But I think they definitely kind of influenced each other. And, um, I mean, there were times, I mean, I think there were both bands existing, Fishbone and Chili Peppers. I don't think, like... Fishbone necessarily started playing in public before the Chili Peppers did or anything, but um, I think they definitely took stuff from each other. And Flea in the movie even um, cops to like uh, ripping off some bass lines <laughs> from uh, from Norwood, the Fishbone bass player. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, funny scene. I mean, I think that was just like at a time in music where I think they were trying to reconnect with stuff that was happening in the '70s. You know, when there were like more black rock bands. You know, like parliament funkadelic or or some of those other you know kind of uh, you know rick james kind of things you know and so fishbone was trying to access that you know while also listening to a lot of punk rock and heavy metal and then the chili peppers you know were probably coming more from like the punk rock scene but you know george clinton produced like their second album right like um, you know they were definitely into funk music too so you had like the white guys trying to play funk music and the black guys playing punk music, you know. So I think that's kind of how their musical relationship, would, you know, started out. I uh, yeah, I, I was always into the Chili Peppers, and then when I, it's like one of those things when you discover somebody prior, you go, oh, I'm I'm a fucking idiot. Right, right. Or like how <laughs> like rappers sampling somebody or something. I, like I found so much like jazz and old R and B soul music, you know, through rap music. Oh, I know. Yeah, I kind of missed that with rap music. I like. I don't. I kind of don't like a lot of the way they do it these days. I like yeah. weird loops and what 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 have you not. Well, I always thought that's what a lot of rap music was about was, um, you know, kind of like, oh, you're using this sample, you're referencing this song, and that just makes the song seem richer, you know, like kind of have more depth to it, you know, because it seemed like that, you know, they would sample certain things and that would be, you know, like as a reference, like a literary reference or whatever. So I always thought, yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. It's and then it seems like P Diddy just really ruined it and was like, I'm just gonna use the whole fucking song. Right. <laughs> it's or like they, or they all sound the same where it's like do do you know, like they just have like that like one like keyboard thing that just like makes now, it sound like an anthem. You're from Portland, Oregon, right? And that's see that's it's weird like you because I'm friends we're both friends with Matt Bronger. What goes on up in there that you guys are into such because it's like the whitest place on earth. <laughs> it is pretty white. But, every, but like Bronger is a hip-hop aficionado like it's crazy his knowledge yeah and you seem pretty into the funky black well, people we, music I, I think both matt and i 
at times in our lives, at least, I mean, I've lived in, my mom still lives in the house I was born in, in Portland, Northeast Portland. You were born is, in the house? Yeah, I was born in that house. That's, I mean, that doesn't happen. The chiropractor <laughs> was the midwife. <laughs> really? Yeah. Set your spine straight right out of the, yeah, out of the womb? adjustment right when I popped out. <laughs> um, but we're, when, I, when I was growing up there, it was like, you know, 50% African-American. It was actually a really diverse neighborhood. Yeah, in Really? Portland. Is that, no, is it segregated? Because it's like, I'm not kidding you, when I was there, the first time I went, I, it was like the seventh day I saw a right. black couple, and right. I was like, oh. Well, what's interesting with a lot of gentrification is now the, a lot of the black families live out in the suburbs. Or like, you know, like <clears throat> two houses down from me with Mr. Montgomery. And he was an old black guy from uh, Mississippi, actually, who worked at the airport for like 30 years, like, you know, as a porter, just moving luggage around or whatever. And um, really nice guy, like the guy in the neighborhood that would fix everyone's cars or lawnmowers and whatever. And Mr. Montgomery was awesome. I ended up buying a car from him once, a 78 Ford Granada, but for 300 bucks. <laughs> awesome. A 78? 78, yeah. And then... Um, but anyways, like he was telling me when he decided finally to sell his house, this was like maybe 10 years ago. He's like, you know, I've lived here forever. I could sell this house for 800000 move, you know, a couple miles north and buy a house for 250000 You know, why wouldn't I do that? You know, so they were ending up right. moving out of that neighborhood, which at the time was like when my parents moved in there, the house was super cheap because it was in this black neighborhood, you know, and then just over time, it gradually gentrified. But That's kind of how all the cities are going out like it, they're right. becoming white rich urban playgrounds and right the suburbs are becoming di diverse like chicago is it's just getting weird yeah yeah and i think in portland you know it's it is pretty white portland is very white but just maybe the shipping um you know it was a port town um you know and different manufacturing jobs you know might have attracted you know african americans over time i'm not i don't know the whole history of it but well then get the fuck out of here <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's like all i want to talk about not your filmmaking <laughs> now how did uh, i'm gonna pour another cup of joe it's like we're having a coffee clutch yeah, yeah, um but uh so and that's just because you grew up in this diverse neighborhood so you, that you became a little bit more because in uh, had a diverse sort of musical background a little bit. Well, you would say? what it what it really was more than even that probably was my father who um, was an avid record collector, big music fan. Um, he was from Southern California. My parents met in uh, Berkeley, um, and they graduated in '69. So Whoa, they were because that was like the yeah. yeah yeah yeah. I just watched a whole documentary on that. Yeah yeah. So they were there, you know, '65 to '69. Um, were they, they involved in all the because they were my, like protesting against the school on top of the war? It was like right. really intense. Right right. My mom was very political. She was never really a hippie. I mean, I think like she did acid once or something. And sorry, mom. Um, but, <laughs> I've done know. it an uncountable amount of times, mom. <laughs> Yeah, she, you know, but she was very political, whereas my father was more of, a, I think, a hipster, more into music. And, you know, he did political stuff, but neither, not, neither of them were really hippies, but they were definitely involved. My mom marched in Washington. She she told me she was in the same holding cell once with Barry and uh, Mayor. Wait. Marion Barry? Marion Barry, yeah, the D.C. mayor. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah it's you also know, like, kind of weird that they put a... a a man and a woman. Yeah, a black and man also, and a white woman. Especially, I think it was to say put in like a whole bunch of protesters or something. Yeah, they just got to shove them where they yeah, go. Yeah. Should have been a fuck party. <laughs> yeah, right. They Not, I didn't mean to be like, I mean like, they, they are you calling my mother a slut? <laughs> I, I knew as we're soon done. as I, <laughs> we're done. I knew as soon as I said that, I was like, well, that didn't come out right. <laughs> um, but so my father listened to all kinds of music and it's really funny if you look at his record collection, it's like, 
tons of like R&B and soul stuff from like the 50s and 60s blues and everything kind of like you can imagine in music but like no Led Zeppelin thank god no Pink Floyd <laughs> that's amazing but like all this other shit like and he was the one that introduced me to Fishbone he's the one he brought home Run DMC and Grandmaster Flash and Beastie Boys and um, Suicidal Tendencies and your dad yeah my dad was listening to all that M my dad brought home Ann Murray <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was different, you know, and, and uh, he took us to see Talking Heads. We saw the Stop Making Sense tour when I was a kid. Um, we saw Little Richard. He took me to um, Fishbone. Um, he took me to Suicidal Tendencies. Like, he would take me to shows. And, like, once he was like, hey, I want to go to the show. I hear they play, like, live sex change operations on, on stage, you know, on wow. film. You know, they projected it on the back of the stage while they play. And we're like, oh, that's gross, Dad. Who's the band? And he's like, Butthole Surfers. You want to go? And we're like, gross, Dad. We're not going to that, you know. That's fucking amazing. It's weird that you didn't like your rebellion wasn't like becoming a young Republican or something. Right, right, right. It right. almost seemed like what well, was I, your rebellion when that you're like, well, what happened is my father passed away when I was uh, uh, a couple months before I turned 13. Whoa, mine too. Yeah, yeah. That's really weird. That's a coincidence. And same uh, with my friend Annie. Like that's I could that age like like 12, 13. Yeah, it's a and, pretty and, crucial. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry I yeah, didn't hear puberty. that about your dad. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear about yours. He, mine was a prick who brought home Ann Murray. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, mine was just a total tragedy. No, um, <laughs> no, he had, um, so, you know, he had passed away, and then that kind of became, in a way, my rebellion, you know, because um, by the time I turned 15 and started high school, or 14 or 15, whatever, and my sister went to college, so it was just like me and my mom you know, living in this house, you know, and that, that was probably my rebellious period, like all of high school, just because, you know, I was acting out cause I was, I was totally self-medicating, like just drinking and smoking and partying. Cause well, that was fun. That's what people did in Yeah. I guess anyways. I'm still self-medicating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I am too, but, but, um, you know, so, I mean, that was like my rebellious period and that was just more me being a jerk towards my mom, I think. Just by, you know, like going out and not coming home and not telling her where I was. and Yeah, see, my mom checked me. out, so it was like, because I was the youngest of five, and I had a couple brothers who were like, like punched police, like they were rough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, so my mom, I think, was just, and I was like, I just got to stay out. But, so, then when did you develop an uh, interest in, in film? And then, I'm always interested too, because then it's like, document, it's like, it's like the poetry of uh, cinema. It's like you're not going right. for the big bucks there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in for the money, apparently. <laughs> but, well, hey, I'm in podcasting. Huh? Well, it's a, it was kind of a very circuitous route for me to become a documentary. Please filmmaker. don't ever use words that big again. <laughs> I'm a kid from Chicago. I can't speak that. I, I'm just happy I pronounced it right. You know, because I was like c c circuitous, the studio, <laughs> circus route. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, well, going back to my dad again, he had bought a video camera, like one of those first like VHS cameras where it didn't even have the tape in the camera. You had to like plug it into the VCR. Oh, that's you awesome. Know, like, you know, um, which I think we still have that camera at home. But, um, you know, he bought that and he would tell. So he worked as a social worker at a hospital in Portland, like an inner city hospital. Sometimes for a while, for like two years, he worked the night shift. You know, so emergency room social worker night shift at inner city hospital in Portland. So it'd be a lot of stabbings, a lot of Whoa. gunshots, a lot of drug addicts coming through. And his job was either to like, you know, help people get into rehab, figure out how they're going to pay their medical bills or like tell their loved ones that their significant other had passed. 
Um, and so he was, while he was doing this um, night shift thing, he would, um, in the daytime, turn on the camera and record himself telling stories about working in the ER. Do you still have those? Yeah, we still have those. Which wow. Are pretty, you know, I mean, especially since he passed, there's always something nice to go back to to hear his voice and see him and, and stuff. And see him but, talk about a guy being murdered. Right, right. <laughs> Just real soothing yeah. before you go to sleep stuff. You know, and he had this, this like really <laughs> kind of like crazy sense of humor about it, you know, and like, and I think it actually got him fired from that job because they were like, he got fired. I don't know exactly what it was, but the the reason I heard is that he was said to have like an inappropriate sense of humor. And I think he was, that was just his coping mechanism. Yeah. I was going to say, it's like, we're like with homicide cops, you kind of have to. Yeah. 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 And like really tragic stuff, like some logger who's cut a tree and it landed on his son and smashed his head. Oh my head. God. You know, like really bad stuff, you know, and he would talk about like room six where they would lay patients down, dim the lights put whatever injured part like kind of hidden and and bring the family and like really heavy duty my dad ended up dying of a heart attack so you know i mean it was I'm sure it was very stressful right exactly you know um so anyways uh oh so you know we had this video camera around so he would do that i would do uh you know we would make up uh like me and my friends like fake newscasts or like you know we do like satires of mtv like <laughs> You know, I remember once my sister, my me and my sister and her friend did like our own version of uh, Robert Palmer's uh, "Addicted to Love." Is that that's Robert Palmer, right? It is "Addicted yeah. to Love." Yes, you know, and like we always laughed at how he was the worst dancer. So I'm like purposely like dancing really <laughs> badly, you know. And, um, you know, so we'd always fuck around with the camera, and then, um, gosh, jumping forward, you know, I took like f- photography classes and a couple. I think maybe I took a film class, like like as a summer class when I was in high school. I got into college though, and I got um, really into environmental stuff, um, which I can talk a little bit more about later. But uh, you know, I ended up actually becoming um, working for an environmental organization my first year out of school. Which one? Um, one of the Pergs. I got hired as an environmental associate for Osperg, which was in. Well, there was. I was hired by the national organization, but they placed me in Portland, which I was like cool with because I was like cool. I want to back go back to Portland after being in Wisconsin for four years. <laughs> Where'd you go to school? I went to Beloit College, Where which is, is it? it's a small like fifteen hundred student school, basically in between Madison and Chicago. Up oh yeah, okay. You know, little shit liberal arts school. I mean, it was a great school. I, I loved that school really, but. Um, but, you know, I was working for this environmental organization and I just felt like, oh, this is kind of bullshit. And they were paying me $16,000 a year. That was my salary, you know, with student loans. So I was like, okay, rich people's kids do this kind of work, <laughs> you know, because they can afford like to have their parents pay their rent, you know, and I couldn't. So I was just like, fuck this. And then um, I started getting into urban planning, you know, and I ended up taking some grad school courses at Portland State, which has a really good urban planning program. Um, but then I dropped out of it because I was like, you know what? They're just teaching me how to be a bureaucrat for the city of Portland. I could learn this stuff like on the job probably. And I had enough like experience with the environmental stuff to go into, um, just to be, I don't know. I don't know why I felt that confident about it really, to be honest, (laughs) looking back, it didn't really seem like the Bryce thing, but I was dating this woman who lived in San Francisco and I was like, I'm going to move to San Francisco. I'll get out of Portland. By then I was already done with Portland and wanted to move to San Francisco. And I figured, well, there's all these municipalities, you know, you have Oakland, Fremont, Hayward, Berkeley, San Francisco, Palo Alto, all these places. There's got to be some kind of government job, you know, like a a planning job. This was in 2001. 
<laughs> right before that, right as the dot-com boom was happening, basically. I mean, right when it was crashing. And um, so I moved down to San Francisco. Sure enough, just after two months, I got a job as assistant bicycle planner for the city of Berkeley. That sounds like solely a job for Berkeley, like bicycle. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it was like awesome. It was cool. Actually, it was only 19 hours a week. So I had two other jobs. I waited tables at an Indian restaurant in San Francisco. And Did you fake an Indian accent? No, but I was the only white guy there. And I was there when 9-11 happened. And there were oh, like, really? Af- there was this, oh. and I'll tell you this real quick story. There was this Afghani guy who was a cook. And I started talking to him when 9-11 happened because I didn't know shit about Afghanistan before that. But right after it happened, I went in and was talking to him. And he had said he was a Mujahideen fighting against the Soviets. And like wow. he had seen Bin Laden because, you know, Bin Laden was funding them and stuff, like giving them money. Um, but he said the one thing this is you might not read in history books, but or actually you probably would in Russian history books. But they um, he said a big part of the reason why the Soviets lost is they would trade AK-47s for Afghani hashish. You know, so they were like, you know, it was wow. like their Vietnam. Good, right? good yeah. hash. <laughs> right, right. Anyways, so I was working at this Indian restaurant. I was doing the planning. Um, this will this will lead to somewhere. Trust me. <laughs> um, I do. I trust you. But um, you know, it was part time. It was it was a cool job though. Like a lot of my job was just riding around Berkeley, like finding things that needed to be improved. You know, just on a replacing, bike. Replacing. Yeah, I would just ride around my. Would bike. you smoke weed on this job? I don't know if I ever did when Seems I Seems like a weed smoking job. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I ever did when I was actually working because I was just on my bike riding around. Like, I didn't really need to. It was just fun entertainment in itself. It wasn't like... Yeah. I always smoke weed to do something to, <laughs> you know, if, 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 if something's boring. But it was, you know, plus... Yeah, but you would think in Berkeley, right? But I was living in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco the whole time I lived in the Bay Area. Um, anyways, um, but then I eventually got a job for a consulting firm. Um, dude, that did like, uh, we, I did still did some bicycle projects, like, uh, improving bicycle access to BART or, um, you know, doing bike plans for cities. Um, and then I ended up working for another firm that did even just specifically bike stuff almost exclusively. But after a while I was just like, you know, this is kind of boring. Cause what it happens is once you're in the role of a consultant, you just kind of work as like the middle person between the city Caltrans, you know, the transportation yeah. department and local residents that either want something in their backyard or they don't want something in their backyard, you know, and you just write the report and you just move on to the next thing. And, you know, I, I wanted to build the cities of the future. Like that was kind of my thing, you know, and which that job doesn't really exist. <laughs> <laughs> so once I kind of figured that out, I was like, you know, fuck this. I don't want to do this work. I want to, I want to tell stories and, make movies because i think that's that's where i can combine my love of art music politics history storytelling you know you can put that all into documentary film so i um i uh, eventually kind of worked my way into that field you didn't go to film school you just kind of crammed your way in there no i um i took a city college of san francisco class like filmmaking 101 it was 85 dollars, which was fucking awesome and we shot with digital stuff we shot um with super 8 film and just learned very basic stuff just how to light an interview doing sound and a little bit of editing and then uh, later on i took like a four-day final cut pro crash course and um, and then I started volunteering on a documentary called uh, The Real Dirt on Farmer John. What is that? It was a documentary about um, a CSA farmer, this guy who calls himself Farmer John. He, it, actually in Illinois, in, uh, outside of Rockford. 
has a farm out there and he was one of the first people to turn it into real successful uh, CSA, you know, community supported agriculture, you know, when you subscribe to a farm and they deliver produce once oh, a week. Really? That's all over the place now. But this is like in the early 90s when he was doing it. And, you know, he's got like now he's got like 1,500 subscribers in the Chicago area off his like 110 acre farm. Wow, that's fucking smart. And it's like, yeah, and it's like really good produce too because sometimes the csa farms like you'll show they'll show up and it's like half full box of like kind of mangled looking produce but his <laughs> stuff is like pretty good you know he's real successful at it but yeah i've been trying to shop at farmers markets sort of to be because i'm anti like factory farming and right. all that stuff uh-huh. and it's like but there's some of them it's just like like you look at their fruit and you're like do you think i fucked your mom like what, <laughs> why is this it's like terrible and it's like expensive yeah yeah what you think you accuse I, my mom of being in an orgy of, <laughs> you see? so did you when was you did the farmer john thing and then you just when did you it was the the what is the, the fishbone documentary yeah, yeah, your so, first one or did you do no, anything no so that was like my first i had done a couple shorts just kind of for fun that i just put together that you know i wouldn't show to anybody now probably but um it's amazing when how I, shitty early work can be. Yeah. I mean, I'm speaking of my work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, they, um, so the, I had come on to that Farmer John film towards the end, and my job was to like do publicity, do outreach to like different farms, like when the film was playing in those areas or at a film festival. Like I did all the film festival stuff. Like, you know, I was hustling the film. I was kind of like the PR slash assistant producer. I don't know what, I mean, it was almost like a producer role, but I wasn't a producer because I wasn't there for most of the filming or anything. But um, we, uh, oh, I'll tell you real quick. This is a funny little aside. Um, we went to the Nashville Film Festival in, uh, in Nashville. and uh, <laughs> In Dubuque, Iowa. In Dubuque, Iowa. And um, I, I would go to some of the festivals like they would the, the director and farmer John would pay to bring me along because I was valuable enough to them that, you know, they, they would do that. And they brought me to Nashville, thankfully. And um, Al Gore gave the film an award there. So we went and like hung out with Al Gore. Like you smoke weed with Al Gore? No, I heard he used to take bong hits with Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, I've heard that, that too. Yeah, yeah. I think he and Tommy Lee were roommates. Yeah, they were roommates in college. But um, what was funny, so like I hadn't met Al Gore yet, you know, and I was going to go the film. Leslie, this girl who is a musician and John's girlfriend at the time, was going to go play at this open mic thing in Nashville at the Bluebird Cafe. And um, I was going to walk from the hotel down there because it's like half a mile or something, you know. And so I was like walking out of the hotel, but she came running in and she's like, um, oh, uh, are you going to the Bluebird? And I was like, yeah, I was just going to walk down there. And she's like, oh, well, you should just jump in the car with us. And I was like, car? I knew we didn't rent a car or anything. I was like, okay. And she was running upstairs to get her guitar. So I go outside and this like black Cadillac with tinted windows like rolls up slowly. And and I go up to the driver's window because I, you know, I, I don't, I assume maybe John's driving or something. And <laughs> the driver rolls it down. It's Al Gore. And I'm driving? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like his Cadillac, you know, and Tipper's shotgun. And I go, oh, oh, Mr. Gore. Hi. And then, and then John's in the backseat. He rolls down his window. So I saddle over to John and I'm like. Hey, John, what's going on? He's like, well, we're going, yeah, that's how he talks. We're going to the Bluebird Cafe and um, we're going to go hear Leslie play. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, uh, yeah, I was going to go walk down there. So I, I, I guess I'll see you guys there. <laughs> yeah. And I start walking away and later John told me, he's like, he said that like when I started walking away, Al Gore turned around and said, 
I think that guy wanted a ride. <laughs> and then John was like, oh, that's Lev. He helped out in the film, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then I guess Tipper was like, oh, get him in the car, Al. You know, so then I ride, get in the car with them. And we're going, and Al Gore, you know, he lives outside of Nashville. And he's like, oh, Bluebird Cafe, I know where it is. And he kept, like, making the wrong turn. You, you know, can't really get mad at Al Gore. <laughs> I know, I know. And I'm sitting in the back seat, and I'm the only one maybe in the car that knows where it is because I'd walked by it earlier, you know. But, I'm like, do I say, no, you just made the wrong turn, Mr. Vice President, you know. Like, is that how you had to refer to him? No, I, I, yeah, I think, think I, I, get... I might have even called him Al. I don't remember. Oh, you can, uh, makes, makes me think of Paul Simon. But that made me think of it, too. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know if I actually called him anything, maybe just sir or something. And then like I tried to, we were at the bar and they were like totally cool. Like Tipper was like super cool. And like, I had never knew cause the only thing I knew about her was the whole PMRC thing. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, um, but they wouldn't drink in public, even though like supposedly they would later on that night drink a few bottles of wine and a few. Um, well, I, don't know. <laughs> I mean with, with the director and, and cause they hung Al Gore loves drunk so. fucking out right, here. Right. <laughs> Um, but they were super nice and like even, uh, um, like, you know, some jackass got up there and he's like, Oh, I see Al Gore's here. I'd like to thank you for inventing the internet, you know, which is uh, something he never even really said, you know, that's, uh, but, yeah. you know, I but love, Al just smiled and waved and it's it was below to yeah. a degree to be like that. It just got to suck. Yeah. Yeah. Can't I mean, do and, anything. Yeah. Yeah. I can't and, have a drink in public. I'd lose my mind. It was really interesting because, you know, he always seems like a real stiff guy. I mean, he always gets made fun of that. But I saw him like when we showed up at the that film festival the night that he was giving the award, we were outside with him. And then when we walked in and all of a sudden there were like cameras, you could literally see his back stiffen. That's interesting. Like, it just kind of like he kind of stood more upright and he just got way more wooden. And um, I just felt so bad for him. Like I realized right then and there, I was like, God, I would never be a politician. I would never do that because he does not look happy, you know. Um, wow. That's really, that's a interesting. Uh, right. He's like fucking Lenny Bruce, jazz musician, loose. <laughs> <laughs> then the cameras yeah. come on and it's. Yeah, that, he, that he's got to hide his other personality. I don't know. I don't know if he's that loose, but, you know. So yeah. how, how did you get hooked up with, uh, what made you take interest in Fishbone? And because it is an interesting story, because it is a band that is incredibly unique. Like nobody fucking sounded like them before, and no one can really copy that. Dota Chili Peppers may have tried, <laughs> but it's like, it's, so it is an interesting story. But how did you? What was that? What dragged you into that? Well, so I I was um, I was a fan of of theirs when I was a kid because you know my dad took me to see them. I was probably like you know maybe ten years old or were something. they as crazy like you hear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it was it was definitely a good show. Like, I mean, you know, the, the, they would do they would do stuff that you don't really capture on camera. Like one thing going into this film, I was thinking, God, like, how are we really going to shoot this or like really show how dynamic these shows are, um, you know, without just showing st stage dive after stage dive or whatever. But I, you know, so I was a fan of theirs. I knew that they um, had this background story of um, so they all mostly we're all from South central LA, but we're bust into the Valley as part of the desegregation efforts in the late 1970s, you know, so they all meet at junior high school there, start listening to Led Zeppelin and the sex pistols and, and the clash and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, and then end up forming this band. But, um, <clears throat> so I knew a little bit about that. And then I had actually interviewed Norwood, the bass player who's in the film with the long dread, um, in Chicago. Cause, when I was in college at Beloit College, um, I uh, had radio shows, 
you know, I would do like one semester I did a jazz show and then one semester I did like a indie rock show. Another semester I did a hip hop show. And, um, but I knew that Fishbone was playing with De La Soul and Goody Mob at the Cubby Bear. So I was like, just that uh, from Chicago. Yeah, so yeah. I know exactly that total, place. like the, yeah, the total, like kind of frat bar, oh, kind of whatever. The worst. Yeah. Yeah. They should, they, they used to, I think we used to joke in Chicago, they should rename it like date rapers or something. Or <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah. it's awful. Yeah. But yeah. then they get guys like that playing there and it's right. like confusing. I saw Lee Scratch Perry there once, you know, which was a fun show. But so I saw, I knew that they were playing when I was like with De La Soul and Goody Mob, I want to go. And, um, so I was like, well, I don't, I can't really even get a ticket and I can't justify like driving down there. And so I said, well, maybe I'll do an interview for him and tape it and do it, you know, for the radio show. So I did that and I met Norwood then. And then I just realized that those guys were all real characters too. So I realized too, it's like, well, not only do they have this interesting story and play this interesting brand of music, but they're all kind of characters or personalities that you can follow around and, and be entertained they're by. pretty <laughs> crazy. Like it's a, especially who's the, what's the front man's name? Angelo. Angelo. Yes. Yes, he's. Uh, I'm, but he's also like. I mean, he's nuts. In, or he, at least he comes up. But he's not in the in the bad way. Like he eats his own poop. But right. <laughs> he's a unique. And he's like, seems like a pretty charismatic dude. Yes, yes, he's a very charismatic guy. And I think. I mean, um, he was. He's the one that everybody recognizes. He's he's very smart. He's just kind of a musical genius. Kind of spins his wheels a bit. Kind of like you know. Um, is kind of ins insane musical genius that, you know, um, maybe he only understands at times, you know, but, um, but yeah, yeah, they're all, they, they, and they were all like real strong personalities, even if they weren't as crazy or as charismatic as Angelo, they were all interesting to talk to, or at least from what I could gather. So I always thought that that would be a good music documentary. And I was always surprised it hadn't been done, you know, cause yeah. And then, um, I was like, fuck it. Well, why don't I do it? You know, I, I've, I've. I understand the music. I know a little of the backstory and, um, you know, why not? How do, how do you get started with it? Because my first thought is, well, I need some dough. Right. And it's like, that's not an easy, you know, unless you did it. Well, no, what I did is I found somebody. So when I did the Farmer John stuff, I met my 2B co-director, co-producer, Chris Metzler on the film festival circuit. Cause when the farmer John film came out, his first film, which was about the Salton sea and all the crazy people around the Salton sea called plagues and pleasures on the Salton sea. Great film. People should check that out. Um, he and I got to be friends. We were both in San Francisco, really cool guy. And I knew he had equipment. Like he went to film school at USC. Like he knew what he fuck he was doing. And, um, so I was like, well, if I co-direct with Chris, I'll have all the equipment <laughs> and I won't need wise, so much money. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, so I'd asked him and he'd never heard of Fishbone before, or he might've been like vaguely familiar with them, but you know, he didn't know anything about them. And then I, you know, I mentioned it to him at a party. And then like a couple months later, we saw that they were playing in San Francisco. I didn't even know they were still touring. And I was like, let's go check them out, you know? And Chris was like, okay, yeah, let's do this. And, and then after he saw the show, he's like, fuck yeah, let's do this film, you know? And then, and then that night we approached Norwood cause I, I knew he was kind of the guy that ran the band a little bit, you know? And, um, it took a couple months to kind of court them, you know, kind of convince them that we were the right people to tell the story. Like Norwood kind of felt like, well, I don't know if we're ready for a documentary. Aren't they done when a band is like over, you know, like, isn't that more like the, the capstone on the tomb right. or whatever. And, um, and we were just trying to tell them, well, no, because, you know, we'll film it, you know, and you'll, we'll see where the story goes. There's plenty of films that are done about bands that are still working or whatever. And, uh, 
you know, but it just seems like it could, and it could bring, you know, our pitch to them was always like, maybe it'll renew interest in the band and, and people will like you guys again or whatever. Yeah. There's definitely an, from when I've seen it, there's definitely an arc to their story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the guy who split and comes back. Right. Right. What what, what happened with him? Did he get, was he by, and what is his name? I, I, Kendall Jones. Kendall Jones. Um, is he bipolar or something? Um, maybe. I don't know if he's ever been diagnosed with anything. Um, I think he's super smart, super nice, super friendly guy. Like when we hung out with him, like he was always pretty straight up with us. He did, you know, like maybe drink before interviews. Every time we showed up, he'd already been drinking. So when you see the film, he looks a little intoxicated. But um, <laughs> um, And I think for him, it was self-medication. Like from what That's I understand good. about his father, which isn't in the film so much, like he, he seemed like he did really nasty things to him. Like there's stuff in the court transcripts of that subsequent trial of when the band members are accused of right. trying to kidnap him when they're really trying to do an adult intervention. Um, you know, they're because the band members are explaining why they were so scared for him, like going to join his dad because his dad like, you know, would beat him and do all this. Really Even as an stuff. adult. Uh, I don't know about that, but from what he did as a kid, it sounded pretty nasty. Like I don't, you can't, yeah. I don't want to go into it because, you know, but it was pretty nasty stuff. I mean, psychological, physical abuse that you've never even heard of, really. So I think, you know, that was always kind of, you know, an issue for Kendall and he managed for a long time. But then when his dad came back into his life, it kind of flipped him out, you know. It's going to, yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, yeah. But then I didn't mean to jump ahead, but then how did you, how did, did you get to be the, how did they agree? They're like, <laughs> hey, yeah, white you. boy, <laughs> we'll tell our story to you. Um, <clears throat> I think it was just our persistence. And then they realized that we could see it through because I think somebody else had started maybe working on a documentary about them, but never like finished, like gave up a few weeks into it or something. And it just never materialized. And I think what also helped is we showed them Chris's, my co-director's previous film, Plagues and Pleasures on the Salt Sea, which is kind of about freaky people that live I gotta see this. On the salt and Yeah, it's great. Narrated by John Waters, you know, and so oh. so that impressed the Fishbone guys. They're like, well, if they can do a documentary about freaky people and include John Waters, then fuck it. They they could probably be freaky enough to do this with us. So. Do they in, can they consider themselves freaky people? Yes. And well Norwood <laughs> I mean they are a little Norwood does. He doesn't come off that way, like especially on camera. Like he in the movie he kinda comes off as the sane one. But the dude's like hangs out at the Playboy channel you know he's always kind of been into like the stripper culture and and he's talked but and he's into conspiracy theories like he's kind of out there too you know like in in the film people think angelo's a crazy one whereas i think norwood's almost just as crazy but just not visibly so he's just much more in his own world and when you talk to him then you might be like oh that's interesting (laughs) so they they are kind of crazy you know walt the trumpet player supposedly used to have like you know you know, he talks in the film about going cat hunting, you know, or he mentions that and supposedly like they'd have animals in formaldehyde jars, you know, in his apartment. Like he'd go hunting for already dead cats or, or he no, or, or he'd take them and, and, and preserve them after he caught them or something. I don't, I don't really know, but like. That's pretty great. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like sociopath, right? Kind of thing, you know, like that's what. <laughs> When's he graduate to people? <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, those kinds of things that, uh, but. Uh, but anyways, they, they managed to, they managed to be fine. Okay, we'll do this. And I don't know if they were ever really convinced that we were going to actually do this until we were like touring with them in Europe, you know, and they're like, shit, you came all the way over here. So you like lived 
you lived with these guys for kind of or like every day hours yeah oh yeah for how long well over the course the film took about four years to make so it was wow you know because we're driving down from san francisco to spend a few days in la or going on tour with them and yeah we didn't have any money really it's all just kind of um you know get get in where we could like oh they're playing up in um, the bay area let's hang out with them for the couple days that they're here or for interviews like oh bad brains are coming you know we interviewed bad brains they don't appear in the film but they're on the dvd extras you know bad brains is playing in san francisco for two nights we'll get catch them while they're here or stephen perkins from jane's addiction you know is is going to be playing or quest love and the roots how do you get to talk to like it's because it's kind of hard to find people and be like hey can we talk to you and without them being like fuck off <laughs> right I mean, see, for each person it was kind of different so for say ice tea i just sent him a message on his myspace page this was years ago when myspace was still happening and he fucking like called me up on my cell phone and left me a message you know whoa and then, um, <laughs> that's weird yeah did you, you know, save that message i i know because I, I have like three i'm like three cell phones it is kind of weird seven. these days who because with my show, like, I just send out all Facebook, and yeah. some people respond, some people don't. But, like, Noam Chomsky responded, which I and he was like, well, I'm sorry, I just not, I, I can't do it. But I was just shocked that Noam Chomsky wrote me yeah. back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, you know, sending something to Facebook or MySpace or their personal sites. Like, Henry Rollins, like, wrote back, and he's like, oh, I don't I'm know that to I get could, him. T- yeah, he's like... I don't know that I could talk much, but good luck. You know, I mean, it was nice enough. It was a nice rejection, you know, or Norwood gave us Flea's email address. So that's how we got Flea. What is that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Flea at Gmail. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I saw him. It's so weird. I saw him in a grocery store and I was like, I didn't see it was him directly to the left of me. And he's like yelling across the grocery store like, honey. Honey, do we need care? And I was like, who is this white trash? And then I look over, I'm like, who the fuck is yelling in the grocery store? Nah, flea. And it was him. It was kind of weird. And I keep, like, he's one of these, like, you ever have these people that I, I've bumped into him, like, all over the country. Like, yeah. I've been in, like, a bar, and he, the band was, I was just like, what the, how does this keep happening? Right, right Same right. with James Eha. I bumped into him. Huh. You know who he is? No. It doesn't matter. I'm I, rambling. Sounds, he sounds was the guitarist for, uh, Pumpkins, the Asian oh, guy. Okay, okay. But okay. I would see him around Chicago, and then once I was in New York, and I'm like walking down the street, and he's coming. I'm like, how is this possible? Right, right. Anyway, right. sorry. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Like how there's people like that in your lives. Like I, I've I've run into Al Gore a couple times, and he remembered me the one. Really? Time I, I yeah. guess a guy like that is, you know, that's his job is to remember people yeah. too. Yeah, that's when I. That's when I worked at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, which I'm going to tell you this story that I I gave you the teaser about the my Black Panther story. Oh yeah. So. um Yerba Buena. Yerba Buena Center for the Arts was like this. I just like saying it. Yeah, it's right across the street from MoMA, you know, and it's like our multi-purpose art center. They show like international stuff, local stuff. They have concerts. Apple like rents out that facility to introduce their new products. So like I was there when, you know, so I would manage events. So I was, this is what I did when I started getting into film to make money, you know, because it was like part time and flexible. But like, you know, I was there like managing the Apple event when Steve Jobs and introduce the iphone and stuff but um anyway it's not like i'm the fucking steve jobs fan i think that guy was a prick but um and all most of those apple people are pricks too that's shocking they don't donate anything to filmmakers really yeah they they that's Fuck. like their policy you know why so, 
I don't know. I don't know Do what have- their hangouts are. They're just so controlling of their stuff. I mean, I think that might be lightening up a little bit since Jobs has passed. But um, anyways, so this but this place was cool. And they had like they had this show of um, art inspired by the Black Panthers. So they had all this stuff like stuff from Africa and Oakland and from around the world, like people that had been inspired by them, musicians, artists, whatever. And there was this panel discussion um, one night, you know, in a small room, like that seats 45 people. And, um, but it was jam packed and it was about like art and revolution or something, you know, something about the show. And um, my boss came out and he's like, we're, we're over capacity. You know, there's like 60 people in the 45 person space or whatever. He's like, we can't let anybody in unless people start leaving. You know, and he's like, you just got to be strict about because I was always let people in. Then he said, OK, you got to stop that now. And um, so like halfway through the event, this older black guy comes up and he's like, you know, going in. I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. I got to, you know, ask it. You just wait out here. And he's like, oh, well, they asked me to come down. I'm like, oh, are you on the panel? And he's like, no, I created the Black Panthers. Was it Bobby Seale? Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, Mr. Seal. And then I recognized his voice and because re- he didn't have a goatee or anything. Like I'd seen some more recent stuff of him it didn't look like him but it was him once i wow. once he said i created the black panthers i was like oh mr seal please go on it you know but i love it because just for like that second what i was is- like the white man keeping bobby <laughs> seal down uh, how is what is he like can you just get a sense of like he's a badass motherfucker that's he's, i mean you read the, the book i read and it's just like there are no I, I would think back then he certainly was. Now he kind of seems like a grandpa, but like a super cool grandpa, you know? That's really funny. I asked him, I, I, I talked to him a little bit afterwards and I asked him, you know, who was worse, Bush or Nixon? Because this is when Bush was still in power. And he's like, ah, it's hard to say. They both they both have their problems or something. That's really interesting. He actually emailed me back. He wouldn't do the show, but I was just like, it was like one of those like, it's too bad it's not on paper, it is, but it's like, you know, you still get that message from the guy and yeah. you're like, oh, cool. Yeah. So, so I'm um, go back to the uh, the <laughs> the fishbone guys. Fishbone. Yeah, yeah. But so it was. How was the four years? Like, was there any like, were there any like really like was it kind of mundane at times with like weird explosions or? Um, I don't know. It is so when we're making it, there you know there were. It always seems like I mean even now to this day it always seems any minute they're gonna break up. Angelo and Norwood will call it quits and they'll just they would do that all the time while they yeah were pretty much I mean because they were always like not making any money like the guys in the band Angelo and Norwood I think maybe make like 200 bucks a show like the guys make like 100 bucks a show like what? at least this is what was going on then I don't know what it's like now since like because they've been able to book a lot of gigs since the films come out and they've been a bit more oh, that's successful good. yeah I think it's definitely helped them but yeah like for a while it was like they weren't making shit for money you know and so it was really that they were just doing it for the love but then when they don't get along with each other like most bands don't especially if they've been together for so long you know, there was, it always seemed like they were going to break up. Like Angelo was always threatening to just do his solo stuff or just his behavior would get so erratic, you know, like, you know, he's gotten a couple DUIs. And yeah. He seemed a little things. like there's a couple moments in the documentary where he seems pretty hambone. Yeah. Yeah. He's just on the edge and that's just how he kind of lives, you know, and, but he's also a survivor. I mean, he's been doing it forever and he hasn't really slowed down musically. Um, so yeah, there were always moments when it seemed like things would happen. There was never any moments of like huge drama, you know, mo- except for maybe Kendall Jones reappearing, right? Um, which I don't want to talk too much about because I'd like to, for people to go see the film. Yeah, or, we won't, or buy the DVD. But uh, yeah, we yeah. won't go. But I, that's the weird thing. It's like, do you think 
how like they were am i wrong or were they pretty popular back in the 90s like they had like a I don't know how how big their hits were, but they were pretty out front. And it's like, yeah. did they were they one of the products of like shitty record company stuff where they got fucked over? Like it uh, seems I, like they should have been millionaires. Yeah, like well, one thing is to this day they haven't had a single album go gold, which is wow. five hundred thousand copies. So that's like, that's not shit. Because they were pretty like, like they were a band you heard yeah, about a lot. Right. So that's kind they of they really, were on MTV and stuff, or they toured on Lollapalooza. Surprising, and stuff. but yeah, they haven't had a single album go gold. Which is crazy because five hundred thousand copies isn't much. But anyways, so I don't think they ever—they never made money off like record sales. They're always just a touring band. Like that's where they would make their money, and it, you don't make a lot of money on that, especially in their dark days. That was like basically ninety-five to two thousand five or something. You know, they would still go out, but they—they they just were barely getting by. You know, even when we were making the film, at one point, Norwood was saying how proud he was that he could live off of five dollars a day. You God know, like damn. oatmeal and a piece of fish, you know, like, you know, like they were like going through lean times and, you know, they probably fucked away some of their money. Um, I think they have like IRS tax bills on the, like an advance that they did get. Um, but that stuff isn't always that interesting to put in a film and we never know. Really would they ever pissed it. off about it? Like I would, be- I think Angelo mostly because he, I, you know, I think he's kind of the one that really takes things to heart. And he's like one of the people that really feels it, you know, like, and plus I've seen how hard he works like on stage, off stage. And, you know, people keep telling him, Oh, you're like the best or you're like the greatest front man around. Or why didn't you make a lot of money like the chili peppers? So I think that just gets in his head or like, you know, he's friends with Gwen Stefani and those people. So all his like musical peers, moved on and he did believe me i can relate (laughs) (laughs) i have friends directing multi-million dollar films (laughs) yeah you know Uh, what it's like and and you're in a studio in glendale right now so (laughs) yeah but of course no one ever called me a genius other than myself so right (laughs) you're in your head yeah but oh change the world in my head and you know and he's and so i think he's just like and it's it's hard work, like especially the kind of stage show he does. Like, I mean, he still stage dives. He's had like three major knee surgeries. Whoa. He's been sued twice for people getting hurt when he stage dives. Supposedly, isn't, isn't it kind of weird? Because it's like if you go to that kind of show, aren't you gonna right kind of expect that somebody's gonna jump on your head? Yeah, yeah. And what kind of pussy fan does that? Like, oh, it's like, I know, I know. It's it's crazy. One person, like you know, said that she had like a dislocated shoulder and. and fractured skull but there are no medical records so like how do you but you still got to get a lawyer and all that garbage like it's a wow that's real fucked up yeah so i mean i think angelo has had a harder time with it and then the other guys like you know their original drummer left and now he plays drums with justin timberlake and gets paid so yeah um, you know he doesn't have a you know he's not in the same boat um they don't, because they, they're all like super accomplished musicians. None of them do, I guess, studio work isn't like it used to be either, though. Well, the from what I understood, like when we did ask other people about studio work, they would be like, well, from what we gather, you bring Angelo at Norwood in a studio, which a lot of artists will do for like street cred, especially like like-minded bands in LA will bring Norwood to play bass on a few tracks or something that gives them a little cred. But I heard, I've this is just what I've heard is that like they're, they just want to play their own thing and they're not good at taking direction. They're not, that makes sense, there. you know, which is fine. I mean, they're, they're artists and that's what they do. You know, I think it's just stubbornness. They probably made some bad decisions also for them, like a lot of timing, like Dallas Austin, this music producer, you know, he produced like TLC and other big R and B rap acts. You know, he came in to produce Fishbone and he wanted to turn them into what Rick Rubin did with the Chili Peppers, like really give them the structure and do all this. 
but this is when they had just gotten kicked out of Sony records, basically, you know, and really wanted to make a punk rock hardcore album that was just for the fans and for themselves and not for right. somebody like Dallas Austin. So it was just like bad timing, you know. That is, uh, so when the film ended, or not ended, but when you finished it and went, so you went and did the the festival i couldn't speak yeah the fact <laughs> the circuitous festival <laughs> runs because um, then I, it's like i mean you have this product and it's like i wouldn't know what to do like and then you're like who do you fucking go to with that right with, and a great product but which well, makes it easier generally for like an independent documentary um you know the the thing that you do if you don't already have like somebody like sundance or um sundance channel or ifc or hbo buying into it um, you just premiere at the best film festival you can, the biggest one. And we, we had sent like rough cuts to Sundance and South by Southwest and didn't get in based on those rough cuts, which is, you know, understandable. Um, so we missed out on those festivals, but we got into the Los Angeles film festival, which was perfect really being an LA band and everything. So we premiered there in 2010, three screenings sold out. They added a fourth screening, you know, we were up for an award, you know, we didn't win, but it was a great launch, got a good variety review, um, you know, Hollywood Reporter, you know, we got good press coming out of that and a lot of buzz and we did, I don't know, we've done now like probably like 170 film festivals and like we still get requests for film festivals like just one in um, uh, Britain the other day came through, you know, like. And do they thing. fly you out for that shit and then you go and drink the booze and stuff? Some festivals, yeah, that's the best thing. Is that, that is, oh, that would yeah, be awesome. Yeah. I haven't. We, we, I haven't gone out to any of the international festivals. We didn't get into a lot of big international festivals, but um, I went to big and small festivals in the United States and had a great time. And you meet filmmakers. And for me, being my first film, it was so awesome to go out and meet other filmmakers and just feel like I was a part of a community, you know? That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And made good friends like that are making cool films. And um, so that was really exciting. But yeah, you just hustle it, you know? You just try and get there. And hopefully you build enough buzz that other festivals hear about it. And then maybe a distributor steps in um, to say, okay, we want to purchase your theatrical rights and distribute the film. Um, but that doesn't really happen much for documentaries. Um, so why is it? Because I, I like I watch a shit ton of documentaries. Like I probably watch more of those than I do regular. I don't regular films isn't right. the way of putting it, but right. Well, I think you know. I think a lot of people are like that. I mean, um, or at least a lot of people say that. You know, and I don't really believe you because. Uh, <laughs> um, they um, and I think it's kind of true, but they've just never been money makers, especially now. Like when people hardly go to the theaters now, people go to the theaters now to see like the big films just because they want to see it on a big screen. Right. They don't necessarily go because they want to, you know, see a good story that's like, you know, real like, or that they just assume is going to be on TV at some point. Especially like Netflix. a documentary that's a political down. Yeah, that's I would assume because that's I mean, there's so many documentaries on Netflix. Yeah, that you're yeah. probably just like, well, I'll wait for Netflix. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think Earl Morris, Michael Moore, maybe Morgan Spurlock. I mean, I think those are the people that only really make profit on on theatrical releases of their film. Right? Is there does that seem like those guys sort of, with the exception of uh, Morris, kind of have a hook? Like, I mean, a hook to their like. Well, they're Michael kind Morris, of branded. They're yeah, kind, they're, you know, you know, you're going to get something with Michael Moore that might be politically outlandish or something. I don't know. Um, I mean, Earl, Earl Morris has his own kind of hook too. I think, right? He's a kind of quirky story. That's true. You know? I mean, he's um, pretty visually insane too, yeah. in a good way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great filmmaker, and um, 
Are you working on anything like what? So then you finish that, and then you're like, "What do I? And what are you gonna? What are you gonna do now? <laughs> or to put an attitude behind?" So it. I'm right now. I'm working on a documentary about the city of Irvine, where I live. Really? Yep. Is it a, a tumultuous tale that Irvine? It is kind of, even though it's the safest city in America. Five, it is. Yeah, yeah. According to the Let's FBI, go down there and fucking riot. Yeah. <laughs> they um, but this is kind of. It's a master plan community in the country. It's the safest city, yeah, less violent crime than anywhere else, like above 200,000 population. Wow, that's great. Oh, and that's kind of interesting because then you get to utilize your urban development past. Yeah. See how I fucking put these things yeah. together? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is like a verbal documentary. <laughs> this right here, we're dealing with high knowledge. Yes. So yeah. tell me a little bit about the Irvine, Irvine thing because that actually fascinates me. Well, so, you know, I was living in San Francisco for so long. My wife took a job in Laguna Beach. And we couldn't afford to live in Laguna Beach. And we didn't even have a car when we moved down here. So we were like, looked on a map. Irvine was really close. And we found this place that we seemed like we could afford, even though it was $500 more a month than my Knob Hill, San Francisco apartment. Because um, they don't have rent control in Irvine. They don't have individual landowners. It's all owned by the Irvine company. Is it really? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, I mean, except for individual homes, like the shopping malls. Most of the office space and all the rental apartments are all owned by the Irvine company. Is that company. kind of creepy to you? Yeah, it's totally creepy. So like coming from San Francisco and then moving there into the safest city in America, this master plan community where nothing- When you was... say master plan, what do you mean? Because that sounds real weird. Yeah. <laughs> what it is basically is that, um, well, in Irvine's case, it was all the Irvine ranch. They had like 144,000 acres that had, that was all agriculture and ranch land. And then, you know, for a minute they had like the largest Valencia orange groves in the world, hence Orange County. Um, you know, but then in the six, early 60s, well, actually a little bit before that, you know, with all the sprawl coming down from L.A., because um, Orange County was the fastest growing county between 1950 and 1960 in the whole United States. Wow. Like, because just everybody was, the sprawl was just coming southward from L.A. And, um, you know, so Santa Ana tried to annex parts of Irvine. So the Irvine ranch kind of freaked out and they were like, well, we can't just lo start losing our land. This is going to get overrun by development at some point. We should just do it ourselves. So they turned into the Irvine company. They hire this master architect, who's this William Pereira, who's kind of a famous architect, who comes up with this whole plan for the city. You know, and it's because they're building from scratch. There's nothing there but like farm buildings, you know, and they donate some land to the University of California. So that's how UC Irvine happened. UC Irvine is the first major development. It's all farmland. And then it's like empty, you know, and then, well, that's what they call it, empty, you know. <laughs> it needs to be filled with something. Good old American logic. Yeah, yeah. Empty land just waiting for development. But, you know, so they start building the UCI campus um, and then the housing for like students and professors. And then that that was like the center of town and then it just kind of expands outwards and and they follow this whole plan and like it's really crazy because it's kind of this utopia dystopia you know like everything is kind of beautifully you know um landscaped and things all look uniform and Ooh. and it's it, for me it's crazy because even living in portland nothing it was nothing like that that sounds really eerie yeah yeah it's really creepy and then to know that it's the safest city in america but then the little crime that does happen there is all freaky shit you know like, like what like i guess there were like these twin girls one of them killed the other one to assume her identity whoa there was some that's dude... fucking awesome yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it's horrible but yeah, it's yeah. also incredible yeah i can't that's wait like a... to interview her no i'm just kidding i don't think i'll be able to but sounds like a date how old okay. she's like a teenager i think um and then like some dude goes into... when you can get away with murder yeah yeah, yeah right right <laughs> i really missed my window i know fuck me too 
Oh, um, that's really fascinating. And like weird sex shit. Yeah, probably, probably. And there's like, oh yeah, there was like this one guy who was a cop who lived in Irvine and like caught his wife having an affair with somebody and like got them in a room and like made them like do sexual acts oh. and then started cutting off the, their sexual organs. Jesus God. Um, or some dude that went crazy and went in with a samurai store sword. Oh, I remember that. Hacked up people in Albertsons. Oh, that's um, a good grocery store too. Yeah. They have real good deals on meat. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, just kind of weird shit like that. Um, some FBI informant. I was just listening on This American Life. They just they they just did the story just last week, I think, of um, this FBI informant in Irvine at the Islamic Center of Irvine, who was so weird and creepy that the 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 members of the mosque called the FBI on him. Wow. You know. Yeah, yeah. So it's just there's all kinds of stuff happening there, but it's also like. That's amazing. But it's kind of like got some of the best public schools in the country. Like they compete with like Palo Alto for like the best public high schools. You know, they, um, I guess. And that's when it comes down to it when you're, you know, a typical American. And I, I say that with judgment, right. but that's what you're going to like. That's the shit you look for. Like, Oh, yeah. it's safe. And it's got a good school, yeah, safe and good schools, you know? Um, uh, and they, and they have like, you know, but then also there's all these businesses there too. Like, um, well, this isn't a business, but the Ann Rand Institute is there. Um, oh, in and out Burger is based there. Hyundai has their U.S. headquarters there. Mazda has their U.S. headquarters there. Um, in Blizzard Entertainment, you know, that does World of Warcraft, the video game, the yeah. online video game. They're based in Irvine, which is weird, too, because sometimes Irvine feels like a virtual city that, like, there's only like 10 levels. You know, that's the, that's the variety in town. Like people might be wearing different shirts or have a different kind of haircut, but otherwise it all looks the that's same. That's really you know? crazy. So it's kind of like, yeah, like kind of portraying the city as like this utopia dystopia. It's like, you know, but it's also this really weird place, but at the same time, and this is where, you know, most people kind of look at me like I'm nuts. Like they usually do if I bring this up, but like at the same time, it could be kind of this model, um, for sustainable development with climate change and stuff because it's all owned by this, this same landowner. They could like put solar panels up on everything, make everything kind of energy efficient and afford to do it. Cause they're like the guy that runs, it's like the 45th richest man in the world. So there's something. no like mayor. It's just Dionysus. There is, there is a mayor, there is a city and they are really conservative, but I think it's more interesting to have that conversation somewhere there instead of like San Francisco where everyone's kind of on the same page. I'd be kind of, yeah, that's interesting. So, and I'm calling it the, it's my working titles, model city you know it was kind of originally envisioned as this kind of model for new communities but then when you live in it it kind of feels like you live in a model like everything just seems like a shell and a facade but then on the other hand it could also be a model for other cities you know when it comes to planning and um uh, well the planning isn't very good there but you know when it comes to environmental stuff because they do a lot of like everything's irrigated with reclaimed water you know like it's all recycled sewer water that you know, irrigates all the landscaping and stuff. Wow. Yeah. You know, really... So they do some stuff, but it just, and two last things is, have you ever thought of doing it? Cause I thought that stuff about your dad's videos seems really interesting. Have you ever thought of exploring that at all? It seems, I don't know what you would do with it, but that it's I, still I, fascinating concept. Well, I did do something for my class. I did a short film that I kind of edited together. And it was kind of this abstract autobiography kind of thing. Like basically, my dad would always talk about how, you know, he didn't want to be a social worker, but that's what he was good at, you know, but that he wanted to be an artist or a musician, but he just wasn't that good at that. And then me, like I had always thought, well, gosh, I was supposed to be an urban planner 
or I was, you know, on the path to be like an urban planner, but I didn't do that. And I, I made the jump, even though I was kind of like, it was a deep, you know, far out jump. Like it was something I didn't have any business trying to be a documentary filmmaker, but like I made that, that jump, you know? So there's, it was a little short film kind of about that. I mean, I'm not in the camera at all, but it's kind really of an abstract thing, but, uh, well, thank you. Oh, is there a website or anything? Things that well, where can people find this film and maybe other stuff in the future? Because um, the model city thing sounds pretty goddamn fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, the Fishbone one is fishbonedocumentary.com. Um, you can order the DVD directly from us if you want to buy a DVD. It's got all <laughs> and you should. Of, you should. It's got all kinds of bonus features that you don't get when you stream it off of Netflix or something. And I don't want to blow anything in the like that happens in the film, but. There is a scene where Flea blows six dudes. <laughs> yeah, right. yes. So you're going to want to see that. Yeah, you that's see in the that. extra features. Yes, that's in the extras. <laughs> and then, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of in pre-production on my Irvine film, so I don't have a website for that, but it'll probably be called Model City. Are you on and, Twitter or any of that stuff? Um, I'm on Twitter for Fishbone. I haven't, I, I'm not good on Twitter. I, that's one technology I haven't got, but trust me you'll start hearing about it somewhere or maybe i'll uh come back come back or or at least give you a heads up and you can um, I'll direct people or something or i'll whatever i'll I figure would gladly out, help look, promote it'll be model sure. city irvine documentary and look for it in about a year from now awesome oh yeah we did uh, we did our time thank you very much by the way yeah, thank you it was uh great Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I am Matt Dwyer, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this. We do this every uh, week. I have a conversation with somebody, and, uh, you know, we just, it's a conversation. It's a conversation piece, everybody. We're conversation pieces. If you like the show, uh, do me a favor, man. I know these are tough times, but if you can, you know, maybe don't have a cup of Starbucks coffee. That's not a plug for Starbucks, though they did give money to... Uh, pro-gay marriage uh, organizations. But please, uh, get, donate some money to that. To, to me, go to the website at feralaudio.com. Click on my show. You can donate through that. Or if you don't have any money, next time you buy something on Amazon, there's a link there. Go through that link and, uh, you know, fucking buy something on Amazon through my name and we get a little... I don't know what I get, but I get something. I get something, folks. Uh, also, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire. Over there at the uh, at the Twitteries, Twitterize, Twitterists. Um, also, listen. Go around the feralaudio.com website and check out some of the other shows, man. There's a lot of really good shows, and I always plug the same ones. So I'm just gonna say, check them all out. Check them all out. Also, tell the uh, tell your friends about the show, would you? Will you do me that favor. Tell your friends. Pretend I'm a social disease like herpes, and you want to spread it to your, or you gave it to your friends, but you need to tell them about it. I want you to think of me that way. Okay? All right, everybody. I hope everybody's well, and I hope you're happy, and I hope you're filled with love, and I hope you have more food in your fridge than you know what to do with, but you don't waste it, everybody, because Americans waste 40% of all their food. Thank you. It's an artist-friendly podcast collective, hosted by castmates.fm.
Host your own podcast at castmates.fm today. All of our artists reserve the rights to their materials. Your donations directly support your favorite artists, help pay for their show's production, and keep your favorite shows free. Visit fairaudio.com for other original shows and learn about our community of artists that help make this collective possible. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Features the music of the fancy. We are the fancy. Don't the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.